Thank you for listening to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. Welcome, world. Yeah, we're very excited. Today on the show, we have Carl Moroski. We do, we do. He has this thread running through his life of music starting at a super young age. Um, he talked a lot about the difference between just putting in the hours and being naturally gifted. Carl is definitely naturally gifted above yes. the norm when it comes to music stuff. Yeah, talking about, he's just like, I'm bored with music school. I was already trained every summer from uh, the time I was two years old. Yeah, and I think one of the cool takeaways, we'll talk about it in the middle of the show, yeah. is just knowing what you're good at. So yeah. let's get into it. Yeah. Let's hear Carl's story. Carl, bring it. Thank you for listening to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. Visit guyswhodostuff.com. You probably shouldn't Google that. All right. Well, welcome to the Guys Who Do Stuff, where we help you get unstuck, tell a better story, and have a good answer to the question, what are you doing today? I'm Joe. And I'm Josh. And today on the podcast, we've got Carl Moroski. Thank I you, Carl. I am here. Good Carl. to see you, Joe. Welcome Josh, to the basement. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Impressive. Yes, yeah. isn't it? You look good down here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very uh, under the well-lit lighting of my ceiling fan. <laughs> Don't mind those spiders in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Carl. Carl and I worked together at Hope Community Church for a long time. And um, Carl has a... I think you have a really cool story of yeah. all the stuff that you've done and places you've been. And I just kind of want to jump into it right away. Yeah. Did... What I know music has played a role in pretty much has been a thread that goes throughout a lot of your stuff. Right. Uh, a lot of the things that have happened in your life. And you, there's a story that that Mike, who is the pastor of the church that we worked at, would tell a lot about you getting into uh, Juilliard at a NYU. NYU. Yeah, Mike Mike just says a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I think he tells me I played with the Eagles. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I heard that story. <laughs> All right. So you haven't played with the Eagles? <laughs> Downer. So how did you get started in music? He was a really young age, right? Yeah. I my mom tells this story. I was about two. I was home. She was cleaning in the kitchen and we had someone who left a piano in the house that they bought. Yeah. And they never bought the piano. And all of a sudden she hears, do, 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 do. It's Christmas time. That's We Three Kings, in case you can't tell. <laughs> so she's like, there's no one else home. Yeah. And she goes in. And you were two. Yeah. And she's like, was that you? I don't even remember. Wow. She's like, do that again. And then I plunked it out again. So then it was like, oh my gosh. So then like a year later. They took me to a teacher. Somebody told him at a piano store that there's this teacher who works well with like three, four year olds. So yeah. I went to her house and hid behind a chair and she'd play a note and I'd tell her what note it was. And she's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but luckily she had a lot of super talented students who were like 12, 15, 18, 22. So you had these mentors to look up to. So you kind of were on a fast track at her house yeah, for lessons. And then that's, I started about three and a half yeah, lessons. Man, man, I bet you don't even remember much of that. I don't think I can no. remember much until like kindergarten. I remember five yeah. and six. Yeah. I had a concert, um, solo performance in Philadelphia. So that was pretty wild. And I won a competition and I was in Catholic school then first and second grade. 
and uh, the, the nuns let the kids listen to it. It was on radio. So I was like a celebrity, <laughs> nerdy celebrity. <laughs> you, were the, you were the most popular kid. At, were, were you known as Catholic Carl? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So you, uh, so you, you were, were you in Philadelphia? Was that a thing you well, traveled Scranton, to? Yeah, Scranton's in like 90 right. minutes. Scranton. Yeah. Home of the office. Home of the office. Was it like that? Was this Scranton like that? They will never admit it. They will never admit it. <laughs> no one there likes the show. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Does it, I don't recall it presenting. I've watched the office like five times through. Uh, I don't recall it presenting Scranton in a bad light. If you're from there, there's little things like, and all those places are real that they shoot, like the Chili's. The Steamtown Mall? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all that stuff is real. And it, you'd have to be from there to get some of it and have left. Yeah. To appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so. There was a great exchange on social media because there's an episode of The Office where the character played by uh, Jenna Fishman, I think is a real life name. Uh, she was going into Chili's like you were saying, and she gets, she gets overserved at the Chili's at some award show. And she, she's giving a fake speech to the camera. Uh, and she's like, I felt God in this Chili's tonight. And she's like all over the place. <laughs> and like two years ago, she put a picture of her outside of a Chili's like on her social media stream. And she's like, should I go in? <laughs> <laughs> and Chili's responded back. Like the organization responded back and they said, of course, you're welcome back. We lift the lifetime ban and we hope you feel God in this Chili's. That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow so did they sh they shot that stuff there yeah a like lot of it is like those buildings all those brick buildings because we took um a couple of curious friends my daughter yeah. up, up to go and do the tour like it's the bowling alley all that stuff oh they yeah. have an office tour that you can take well we go there. know where to go oh you know where to go <laughs> you that's that's your next endeavor right there it's yeah. a great idea i would pay for that tour, <laughs> go yeah. to tour places they shot the office. that's awesome so you were in a catholic school um in your was music fun for you or was it one of those things where like it was a thing that you just did well both i think yeah and even to this day i don't like practicing yeah I like playing, but then when I was young, until I was about seven, I would get super nervous. Like before I would go on stage, I would cry <laughs> oh, and yeah, actually sometimes were... sit at the, not cause I was bummed doing it. It was just like, a, I don't know. No, my dad would be backstage. He's like, oh, I'll be fine. I go, sometime I'd cry. While you're my playing. feet wouldn't even barely reach the pedal. But yeah, then after the time I got, you know, used to it, I think it was just nerves. Yeah. But, uh, that's a lot of pressure for a little kid to be like, everybody's here to watch you play. Good yeah, time. it is. It's kind of weird, but I enjoyed it. I love music. Our whole family was musical. My parents both sang. My brothers had a band like in the sixties yeah. and then me and my brothers formed a band. We would do some weddings and stuff like that. And, but by the time I was 12, I, I really started working, playing music. Yeah. So by the time I left high school, I, I was making like good money in wow. Scranton. <laughs> Nice. Wow. I played at Bill Scranton's house. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know Scranton was the name of a family. Yeah. So what kind of? So you were actually working playing music as a twelve-year-old. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. My chorus teacher. He was one of my teacher's students. Who was he was in his thirties then, and uh, so he recognized my talent. He said, "Hey, I have a fashion show." Um, next Saturday, I can't do it. Yeah. I was twelve. I was in uh, seventh grade. And he's like, do you want to do it? I'm like, what do you do? He said, we well, just play. If you see someone in a blue dress, you can play, you know, blue velvet or something. Or something like, yeah. like, oh, he's going to be like, you get like $75. I'm like, 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was 1973. I'm like, that's good. And so I did that one. Then I do some other casual things like that. And then when I was, uh, I started working at a summer camp, it was a music drama and, uh, dance, ballet, jazz, all that stuff. And, uh, I was going to go for a week cause that's all my parents could afford. It was a two month summer thing. Most of, uh, June, all of July, mm-hmm. June, July to August. <laughs> And my parents said, well, we can afford one week. I'm like, okay. My teacher really encouraged it. And then right before I went, the girl who was supposed to accompany dance for the camp, she was graduating high school. She got a job up in Boston at Boston Ballet Company. And so the teacher, the ballet teacher's like, hey, is there any of your students who you think might be able to just jump in on this? And here I'm 12, just a ton of other people. Yeah. And she said, I think Carl would be good. He improvises. He doesn't have to read music. He can read music. So if there's specific things, she said, I think you should give him a try. So I was thrown into that. And then I got my whole summer free. And I did that for the next six years till I graduated high school. That's awesome. Yeah, it was amazing. And the teaching they had up there. And then you get to get surrounded by people who are. Oh yeah. And they'd bring guests in for music and and the dance program was amazing. And I got, I learned that skill, which is a rare skill and I've been able to use it anywhere I've lived to make a living. Would you, would you categorize? So it's not normal that you can sit down and play by ear the way that you could when you were two. Did people categorize you as a, like, it is for me, Joe. (laughs) It's not for me, Carl. (laughs) The keyboard is not, I couldn't tell you. Like if you hit a note, I would be like piano. (laughs) That's a piano. (laughs) Nailed it. No, but you know what the cool thing was like at my teacher's house, there were three other people at the time I knew of that did that. So I assumed it was normal. Right. So it it wasn't that I knew everybody couldn't do that, but I thought, they just can't do that. But I didn't think that it was not normal. Yeah. But I realized later on that it's not really that normal. So, so moving on after high school, right. You got this, all this background and experience in, in music. And, uh, I think it's something that I think a lot of us, we have something that we're just kind of at a bare minimum gifted in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So to know as early as you did, we were talking before the podcast started about like the pressure that we put on kids nowadays to choose their major when they're seven, you know, and that they're taking the right classes in middle school and high school. And we were joking, like who knew what they wanted to do when they were 18? Well, we all might've known, but none of us were right. You know, (laughs) like if you think back to 18 year old self. Right. And, uh, but you kind of had this, I feel like, proof that no, I'm really good at this thing that a lot of us didn't have. Like we had ideas of what we thought we were good at and our parents helped us like, yes, you'd be good at that kind of stuff, but you'd been making money since you were 12. Mm -hmm. And so after high school, what was your next step? Like, what were you excited about doing? It was the same as anyone else. Maybe even more pressure because I knew I was going to do music. Everybody else did, but what are you going to do with it? Yeah. There's so many options. And now all of a sudden you're supposed to go to school I've already had so much training and I just figured, well, I'd better just go to college. A lot of my friends that I grew up with are in New York dancing. A lot of them were ballet dancers and stuff. So I wanted to go to New York. So my teacher uh, set up a a lesson, guys named Robert Goldsand. If you look him up, he's tons of recordings and stuff. He was at um, Manhattan School of Music, I think it was. That's where I wanted to go. And so I went and I took a lesson with him. It was great. He loved it. Then I went 
home and then they had their open auditions. I went into New York, did the auditions, and then I got my letter back saying, no, you weren't accepted. So I took it into my teacher. I said, I didn't get accepted. She's like, that doesn't make sense. And then she's let me see what happened. And so then she got back to me and said, Mr. Goldsand wasn't there when you went for your audition. I'm like, so you're saying if he's there and then it's like, pull the string, then I get in. And she's like, yeah. I said, I don't want to do that. I don't, wanna, I don't want that. I was not that person. Like, yeah. So it's already freaking April. Mm. So I'm like, okay. NYU has a good recording um, industry project. Like that, I just started back in the seventies, you know, that whole track. Yeah. So I'm like, I want to do that. I love recording. I love writing. I've already been writing since I'm like 15. And so I just went into the city, walked, and it's totally unlike me because I was fairly shy back then. I walked in, found the music department, walked in. I said, uh, basically told the secretary the story. And she said, well, there's a big piano right there. And she said, well, play something for me. I had just finished my senior recital. So I had like 15 pieces memorized, mm. sat down. I think I played Chopin A-flat polonaise. Dun, 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 dun. And she goes, hold on. Like, I'm not kidding. Like five minutes later, Roger Boardman, he's the head of their music department. He comes in. He said, I hear you're interested in going to the school. I'm like, yeah, I am. And I told him the story about Manhattan School of Music. And I you said, were pretty late at this point. Like this. It's very late. Yeah. Yeah. It was like dumb. And so I played a couple of things from him. I think I played uh, Beethoven Sonata. Then I know I played Claire de Lune, Debussy. And he said, okay, well, get back to you. Uh, next week, I got a letter, full scholarship, everything. Like, so I'm like, yes, that's what I want. Yeah. I want to do it. I don't want somebody to say, hey, wink, wink. Yeah, yeah. you can come. I feel like and you so, earned that. Yeah. So I studied there for a year and then I was just passing everything. Like I said, I had so much training and I talked to the one professor. I, I made a uh, jazz band, which you don't do as a freshman. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want you, but I was in the jazz band. This guy, Dr. Ferrara, he's like, man, you're really good. And I said, I want to get in that program. I said, I'm wasting my time spending these two years doing all these basics. He said, let me see. And he said, no, you have to do it. It's private school. They won't let you just pass out of those classes to get to the recording technology. I said, well, I'm going to quit. My parents were so upset. <laughs> so I spent the next year, I studied privately with the, uh, the head music guy. It cost me a fortune. I would go every other week with him for one more year because he really finished out my training. It felt like it was the last thing I needed. And so I just did that. I worked in a store for a while. I played some odd music gigs in New York. And then at the end of that next summer, a buddy of mine who had been in LA dancing was back in Philly. He came into the city. He goes, Hey, there's a, the company I was in in LA, Los Angeles ballet is coming through town. They're dancing. The director's there. Do you want to move out there with me? I, I think they're looking for somebody. I'm like, really? So I met the guy just in the city in a restaurant bar, John Clifford. And he's like, well, I'll, Take it on Ricky's word that you're good enough. We're opening a school and we have the company. So there'll be a full-time job. You can start in uh, uh, August. And that was crazy. I'm like, awesome. So then I tell my parents I'm moving to LA. What? <laughs> so, so you were done with school or were you going to go back after the personal no, training? Uh -uh. That yeah. was it. I had my training right. all those summers. So for, for somebody who would have your level of just natural talent, was school boring for you? 
I like, I liked my academics more than the music. I took English, of course, and expository writing. I took psychology because I was interested in that. Yeah. But yeah, I like the academics, but then I already had all the music. So I yeah. didn't. So that was nice when I was in LA and then the first year it was like, well, can you perform? We've been using some. I'm like, yeah. And I played them. So I started working with the orchestra out there. And so at 20, I couldn't even buy beer. <laughs> like well, I was so bummed because I was in New York. It was 18 then. Yeah. So I go in the liquor store and try to buy some beer when I first got there. And they're like, oh, can I see your ID? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh, you're only 20. I'm like, you're kidding me. I moved here. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> said to be some kind of special exception. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what was it like working for an opera? Like, how does that work? The pieces, are they already written? Do you get to write them? Do you get to kind of put your own spin on them? How does that um, work? The ballet could be anything. Like I've written pieces for ballet here. Back then it was pretty common repertoire. Yeah. Here in Raleigh, you wrote the Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella, a couple other smaller works. And those are the ones that perform at the Deepak with, uh, yeah, Deepak and, uh, Deacon Energy Center. So, but back then, yeah, I'd play company class. We'd do some rehearsals. I played at the school and then you'd learn pieces for performance with orchestra or solo piano. So they were set pieces, but for class, lots of improvising. And I, I love that. Yeah. But from that, I learned to improvise so well that people realize you're not just improvising, you're actually composing. <laughs> so that's how it when I was here, they asked me, Hey, would you consider writing Cinderella? That was the first big one I did here. Yeah. And I wrote the whole thing in like a month. And the last week before we were in Kyrgyzstan with the band from church. <laughs> so I had to finish it <laughs> over there. It was pretty wild. Yeah. So you, you kind of got your early start with ballet and working with orchestra and stuff. And mm-hmm. then, but I kind of, when I first got to know you, it was from Hope Community Church where you were the worship director and uh, you're doing some really awesome, like eighties classic rock kind of stuff right. all the time. Like, have you always been like a fan of every genre? Do you yeah. have certain genres that you like, certain genres that you don't like? You're just a fan of music. I'm just a fan of music. And I've told people like, if you want to do music, you better be able to play all kinds and be yeah. comfortable with it. It'll be hard to make a living, number one, unless you're really knit some niche that you get in. Even right. ballet, though, but you have to play Gershwin. You have to play other stuff. You can't just play classical. But uh, yeah, I love all kinds of music, and I, I always have. And I guess it was, we did the Olympics in Los Angeles, got to play at that. And there was like, that was my biggest gig ever, like 25,000 people outside there's a, I have a poster of it. I look the size of a pinhead. I could see <laughs> me on this little stage, a sea of people. And that was a trip. But then the company folded. And it was opening or closing ceremonies? That no, it was, they had a arts festival. Oh, okay. Before the Olympics started. And that was, so uh, was a 84-ish? Eight, yeah, 84. Yeah. So it was a couple from the company. We did Gershwin, three preludes. So it's a solo piano. And just these two dancers on the stage and just sea of people. So solo piano in front of 25,000 people. Yeah. Were and you, then I would have been 24 only. Did you have the same kind of nerves you had when you were no. seven? No. You kind of got over that? Yeah. Like it was just such a trip. Yeah. I would still get nervous sometimes playing. I still do now if it's a new piece and I'm getting ready to start, but it's a healthy nerve. Yeah. Like that kind of never really goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, so the company folded and I hung out in LA for another year and somebody told me about, I was the conductor because I didn't know what I was doing. We, we lost our apartment, me and my roommate, like we were living with some girls down in 
Laguna Beach because we didn't have an apartment anymore. We didn't know what to do. We couldn't find jobs. And all of a sudden you're out of work. And uh, he said, well, this is Princess Cruises is having auditions. He said, would you be interested? I said, I just want a job. I don't care. When is it and where is it? So I showed up, did that audition. It was like the end of the day. Mine was like 4.30. They'd been going since 10, I think. Yeah. And I heard the guy before me. I'm like, dang. Like, it, it takes something to impress me. I'm like, that guy was really good. <laughs> like, so this sucks. <laughs> so I go in and I play and, and I get a call. They That's say, hey. funny. You're like, I just did like a 25,000 person. <laughs> yeah. cover, but that now I can't get on a cruise ship. Like, Carnival cruise. <laughs> he was good. <laughs> so I, I get a call and then they said, uh, there's a filling gig, six weeks, Acapulco, Panama Canal. Yeah. I'm like, cool. And that sounds like an adventure. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, I get food and money <laughs> and yeah. board. So I had to remember I had to go buy white shoes somewhere. They said, you need white shoes. I went to a thrift store and bought white shoes. I didn't have any money. So uh, I did that and then I liked it. Then I did an Alaska gig. And I met some guys, I met a bass player. He was with another band. He said, hey, we have a recording group. We do studio work in Vancouver. I'm like, wait, what I wanted to do in college, you do that for a living? (laughs) So he said, yeah. And then he said, I'll do hotel gigs or these odd ship gigs. And he goes, you you should consider moving up. So I met his partner who we're all still great friends now. And uh, Rick Livingstone and... uh, we got along and he did this crazy thing because I told him about the pitch thing and he would tune down on the keyboard slightly off pitch. I said, that's a D, but it's a little low. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so I moved up there a few months later. And, I know uh, that name. Where do I know that name from? He came. He played with Eddie Money. Yeah, he came. Okay. I brought him out to do some stuff with me okay, just okay. for fun. Yeah. And yeah, so that was in Vancouver, um, British Columbia. And that was like rock and roll days, hanging out with the guys from Loverboy and all that stuff. Like they were all friends. It was a very small community. And I was like, now I'm doing what I want to do. <laughs> so we wrote, we did that for a couple of years. We released a couple of singles. And uh, one did pretty well, right? Yeah. Oh. One did well. I, I was thinking the other day, I was leading up to coming here today. I'm like, I remember the first time in the store. When some girl came up, she goes, are you in Montana? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. What was the name of the single that did well? Uh, just a minute. What was it like to, did you have that kind of moment where you heard your song on the radio yes. for the first time? The first time in the house and the first time in the car. And then that moment in the store, I'm like, this is just a supermarket. Like, this yeah. is weird. Is it really yeah. tempting to just like get everybody's attention? Be like, that's my band, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Stop what you're doing. Listen. I remember in, I was in the bathroom the first time I heard it, like showering. I used to have music on and it came on. I'm like, wow, this is strange. So, but we had a lot of fun. And again, they're lifelong friends. The four of us lived together. We wrote together. It was a guitar player, the bass player, yeah. Rick and myself. And we would go in the studio at night for free because, uh, you know, they had connections and we would just do that. And then we'd play hotel gigs again or go out for a couple of weeks on the ship. Yeah. And then one of those, that's where I met my wife. Hmm. Oh, you met your wife on a cruise ship? Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. that's romantic. Yeah. We were Should doing you guys a- do cruises for anniversaries and everything? Um, we're planning one. We were trying to do our 25th, but our 30th this year. And we wanted uh-huh. to go back to Alaska because she was on there. And I, I went out to do a month and I met her the first night on board. And she sent me a note and it, it, I don't think she knew the movie, but on the, it was on a bar tab and it said, 
play Misty for me. <laughs> like, okay. So I see her. I'm like, oh, she's cute. And those ship romances, they, they never lasted. <laughs> but I met her that night. Kind of like summer camp. Or yeah. <laughs> hung out in the crew bar and then we started dating. And then when I got off, we stayed in touch. And then a lot of people from the ships would come over. We we're close in Vancouver was the turnaround port. Mm-hmm. So they come over a house and party and I get to know her. And, and when she got off, she moved back to England and she moved to Vancouver with a friend and, you know, one thing led to another. We just, I never dated anyone else after that. <laughs> nice. So, so Siobhan, that's your wife. She was, mm-hmm. she was living in England and then she moved to Vancouver. Did, was that kind of because of you, you think? Oh yeah. For sure. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Move from England I mean, they can't Vancouver. see me. You can see me. <laughs> but yeah, Earlier. I mean, we, we knew we were in love and even at that young age, you know, it was, yeah. How old are you at the time? I would have been about 26, maybe I think. Yeah. You lived a lot of life by the time you were 26. Yeah. Been a lot of places. True. I'm going on a princess cruise this summer. <laughs> are you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. It's our 20th anniversary and we're doing like the cruise around uh, like Scotland and stuff. We've never nice. been to Europe or anything. So that's oh, funny that's, when you said princess, I was like, that's the one I'm going that's on. That's awesome. Oh. Yeah. Very cool. So earlier you were talking about, you were saying about being a professional in the music industry. Just, you were saying some of the lines of you just got to learn to love and play all kinds of music. Yeah. And I think this is something that I've learned in, in what I'm doing now. And I get to work with a, like creative professionals. Um, there's a difference that I've found that I feel like I want to ask you if you think that it universalizes, there's a difference between like, let's say a graphic designer who designs from the standpoint of I'm an artist, I'm going to put my spin on this thing or somebody who understands that like I work for somebody. And so I'm delivering a product that they want. And there's a difference between like when you want to hire somebody that's a professional, you understand that they're working for you and your customer. And then if you work with like an artist and they're just like, well, this is what I do. Um, and you're going to get what I get. Um, did you feel like, what was your approach as a young person who obviously got a lot of gigs? Were you just here to do what people wanted or to put your own spin on it? Do you feel like you had a mm, attitude about your artistness that you were like, no, man, I don't play it like that. I play it like this. Definitely not in a weird way. Like you were just speaking, <laughs> but <laughs> I, yes. I got a weird accent. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, definitely like even here, you hear band and brothers, the band we opened for Eddie money and all that. Right. We never really consider ourselves a cover band because number one, my voice isn't high enough to hit most of the stuff that those guys who actually made yeah. the albums did. Now we would just change the beat up slow it down, speed it up whenever it needed to do to feel like it was our, our songs. Yeah. And so, but he, any money, when he heard us, he told us backstage, he's like, I've heard all these bands. He goes, you guys killed it. I've heard them live. And some of these were better. Like, and he had no reason to say that. Absolutely. No reason. Yeah. It's because I think we made them our own. And even with, uh, yeah, if I'm playing at a party or something, or I don't do that that much anymore, but like, or at a wedding, you know, I'll make, I'll make the things my own unless somebody specifically wants yeah. something. So I guess a bit of both. Do you feel like your industry specifically music is something that let's say a young person was coming up to you for advice. Like how do you make money as a musician? I want to do that with my life. What kind of advice would you give somebody? Hmm. Well, it depends. Most people, young people who say that now are coming from the singer songwriter. Okay. 
who have actually asked me, not like hypothetically. And I'll listen to their stuff. And if I think there's something in it, I'm like, you should go for it. But there's no guarantees, like, you know, and it's such a difficult industry anymore, especially with the independent art. I mean, there's like to get signed, quote, by somebody is, uh, you know, it's rare. Yeah. So it'd be a tough road, but I, I encourage young people, if they have anything like that, to just go for it because someone might hear that one song. A lot of it's timing in the industry. Yeah. Like we knew so many people, but never crossed that threshold of huge. Right. And we knew tons of people in the industry, but it it was the timing. Because yeah, you spent time as a studio musician. So yeah. I'm sure you had a ton of relationships. Yeah. And then when we all moved back down to LA after like, um, we released those couple of singles. My buddy Rick got a job with this, uh, a cool band they put together. It was called The Best. But we all moved back down. I was married. Then we were going to, Shimon and I were going to have a baby. And like, I want to move back to LA. So I got work there. And like, you're hanging out with all these rockers and like Skunk Baxter from the Doobie Brothers and John Entwistle from The Who. And it's like, it, it's ridiculous. But yet, it didn't matter. So, but if you didn't go for it, I always say you're going to regret and wonder yeah. what what you might have done with it. The Guys Who Do Stuff Challenge. All right. Well, we interrupt this episode of The Guys Who Do Stuff. What are we bringing in today, Joe? Well, I wanted to talk about this idea of how do you know, because I believe some people don't know yet what they're naturally good at. I think some of the traditional wisdom is it's normally associated with what you're passionate about. Like if there's something in your life that you genuinely get more excited about than other things, yeah. that's probably related to what you're gifted in. Yeah, and if you're thinking about something when you're not doing much else, that might be an indicator that you are excited about it, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And Josh and I have talked about this before, but I believe I'm of the mindset that if you know what your strengths are, you should spend your time developing those mm-hmm. and not do the thing that a lot of people do, which is waste a lot of time kind of circling the drain of trying to get incrementally better at what you're weak at. But you don't get a pass. Like you can't be like, well, I suck at that, so I never have to deal with it. But uh, we, I wanted to tell you a couple of things. One that I found really useful. If you guys have never taken like a, a strength finder, which is a brand name of one of these tests or the things that are a personality test that kind of help identify the way that you're wired. I would recommend the Strength Finder 2.0. It's out by Gallup. It'll normally cost you like $20. Mm-hmm. You get a book with it and they will describe to you kind of the process and then you take a test and it really helps you out saying these are the things that are your strengths. Mm-hmm. Have you ever taken any strengths test or personality test, Joe? I took one. It wasn't the Strength Finder. It was another one that had an, an, the alphabet, the E-O-M-P. What was that? Is that Strength Finder? Nope. That's a different one. Yeah. I, I took know. that one in high school. Pretty much, I'm a very emotionally and unintelligent and intellectually unintelligent person that likes to do stuff. <laughs> so I just built everything from that. Yeah, and I ended up here in your basement. <laughs> oh, dreams do come true. Yeah. The uh, so on my I took the Strength Finder test and I'm holding a copy of it in my hand and it's got on the cover a place to write it. And so my top five strengths are strategic ideation, maximizer, connectedness, and achiever. And I think that it's really important to know what you're good at and what you're weak at. And so that you know what kind of people to surround yourself with and how to best spend your time when it comes to personal development. I don't, I no longer think it's a step, a step that you should skip. I think it's important and you should really invest in, in yourself, even if it's just $20 for a simple test or find some free tests online. Thanks for listening guys. And uh, back to the episode. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of this episode with Carl Moraski. 
Do you like this podcast? Get updates and a look behind the scenes by following them on Instagram at GWDS Podcast and like the Facebook page. What was your what was your favorite way to spend the bulk of your time? Was it as a studio musician? Was it on the cruise ship? Was it playing for ballets? Was it I guess it probably a lot about what were your favorite kind of people like you like spending your yeah. time on? I think that's a lot of it. Look, we had fun playing. Uh, we did a couple live gigs in Vancouver with that band. We always had fun. But all of us in the studio creating, that's some of my fondest memories. And yeah. again, we're still all close friends. And Siobhan was there through all that. So she's like one of the boys, you know. So it, We've had a couple authors on the on the show. And I'm, I've been learning about authors that it's a lot more like being an entrepreneur than it is like a... I used to think of it like as like an artist or secluded, like I'm going to do this because you're, right. you're bringing a product to market and you were talking about how songwriting is kind of your favorite part. Did you ever think of yourself as like, as a, as a songwriter, as an entrepreneur, uh, just kind of making it on your own? That was one of my like personal down downfalls. If you want to say it's just my personality is not to sell myself. I just was never good at that. So yeah. the, like when I said earlier, the fact that I went down NYU and walked in there and did that, that's totally not me. Yeah. I was just so annoyed at the other thing that I'm like, mm-hmm. I have to do this, but I probably could have done a lot more even in New York before I left there and moved to LA had I been a more assertive type of personality. So any of the stuff we did in uh, Vancouver, the other guys were the kind of business. They were pushing the songs. They were getting the jingles. They were doing this stuff. And I was yeah. writing. Did you ever write jingles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wrote a couple here. Oh, did you? I did one for, uh, oh, what the heck was it? It's now Highway 55, but it used to be that. The auto place? No. No, the, the burger place. Yeah. It used to be something else. I did Andy's, one for them. Did it used to be Andy's? Yeah. Yeah. Andy's <laughs> but then I did it was the other not Lennar Holmes but it was K&B no I can't think of it but I took I did a takeoff on uh, Home on the Range okay with different lyrics and it's making you right at home <laughs> that's the last line <laughs> oh give me a home <laughs> and then the, the you know the Rich Styles, you remember him uh, no, I don't know. Oh, he was one of the guys with the big hands. He was a greeter. Oh, okay. He moved okay. down. He was a golf guy. Okay. Yeah. So he got me those gigs and then, uh, did Rudino's. I was retarded. I used my accordion. On. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you play accordion. That's not a very common instrument. No. Is that because it's so difficult? You think? No, it was one of those, like my, my dad played at the uncles. They would come over on yeah. a Sunday afternoon at when I was little. Again, my mom, that's another thing. My mom said, she'd look over and you're there at two tapping your foot in time with the music, like sitting on a chair and they're all playing. And then two of my brothers played accordion. And so when my dad went out to California one time on business, his sister lived there and she had this tiny little red accordion and he brought it back for me. I'm like, well, that's cool. I could use this because the other ones are big. I could never have used them. Oh, yeah. But that's the one I actually used playing for Pavarotti. I never <laughs> bought a big one. I could barely get my hands in the straps. You played accordion for Pavarotti? That's right. We don't know that. Yes, I did. Somebody here knew that I played from the symphony and they're like, hey, we need accordion. And that was a cool gig. That was PNC Arena. But the only thing I played, and it was a, like a 
not a minstrel song or something like that, like a class street song, an Italian street song. And it was only accordion and it was only about a minute and it's in the middle of the show mm-hmm. and you stand up and you're mic'd. It's, it's just like that thing in LA, it's PNC <laughs> arena. All of a sudden this little thing's filling the entire room. But can I tell you a funny story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're at rehearsal and I said, I have this one piece I'm waiting and waiting and like to get to it. And it's Pavarotti and he's there. He's hunched on his thing. And, you know, the orchestra, the, the orchestra rehearsal started off, you know, they'd have the oboe plays the tuning note. So he looks over at the guy and I know him. He was a young guy then. And he's like, you know, we do a 441. He said, yeah, I have my tuning set to it. He said, no, he goes, this, he would signal to his throat. This is much better. Like he knew he was telling me he's out of key. I'm like, oh, this guy's ego is just, he's better than an electronic <laughs> tuner. <laughs> so we get to my part. I'm like, cool. I stand up. I do my thing, put it down. And I look around and I'm like, then they continue to move on. I put my accordion in a little case. I get up. I'm going to just sneak out. Hold on. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. And I turn around. And you can see all the orchestra goes, and I'm my back's to him now. <laughs> And these guys are just beaming the old symphony guys. And I turn around, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm done since you corrected or anything. I figured it's fine. I don't play anything else. Unbelievable. <laughs> then he called for a break and I had to go and talk to the uh, conductor and everything. He's, he'll be fine. You can go. <laughs> he, said, he just has to do that. Like, oh, he gosh. wanted you to stay in. Yeah. Cause he thought I'd be thrilled listening to him all day. I'm like, well, here you're at the show. I'm good with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's funny. That's, that was pretty funny. Oh, so tell us a little bit about, uh, tell us a little bit about your family life. Well, let's see. Yeah. We had our first son in California in 1990. And then we had our daughter, Kira, you met her and mm-hmm. that was 20 months later or something. She was born in 91. What's she up to nowadays? <laughs> She's killing it down yeah. in Atlanta. Yeah. She just took a new job. She, we just had our first grandchild and during maternity leave, somebody contacted her and like, Hey, there's this new position at HIG hotel or HGI international group, whatever they have, they have holiday inns and crown plaza. And yeah. so she said, I'm interested. And, uh, cause she was, yeah, she had a good job at Edelman. She did a short internship where we worked together and she was really sharp. I remember. Now. Oh yeah, she really is. And so anyway, she was doing well at her other job, but she says she was ready for a change. She went through like seven interviews and they hired her as social media specialist for okay. the Americas. For and the Americas. Yeah, and there's one other person you know, who's Europe. So like she just went to Amsterdam. For one a America thing. isn't enough. <laughs> yeah. So she's doing great. And That's the baby's awesome. super cute. So it was hotel. So like hotel chains and she does their social media. Yeah. That's awesome. So it is pretty cool. And then, uh, we were living in LA. The only one I imagine she works with the team. Yeah. 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 I haven't actually talked to her too much about it. She just started like two weeks ago. Oh, fun. Hmm. So, um, and then kind of the music scene was getting old in LA. We were there and I'm like, I told Siobhan, we should probably move. It's silly to live here if I'm not doing that stuff. And I knew a guy who had a big ballet company in Miami, Miami City Ballet. And I contacted him and I said, hey, I know you don't have anybody. They've been there for several years, but they didn't have a pianist, which was very strange. Hmm. And I had a mutual friend, the guy I moved to New York with, his brother. And he, he had worked with him in New York. Now he was the director down there. And... uh He said, well, okay, we're coming on tour. 
to Los Angeles. Maybe we can get together while we're out there. You can play class. We're playing at, uh, performing at UCLA. I'm like, wow, perfect. Well, perfect until the LA riots happened and they arrived there and the city's on fire. I've got home video footage, but they were staying in Bel Air. There's this cool hotel uh, by UCLA and it's got up one of those bars on the top mm-hmm. and they had a piano bar. And I'm like, I called them up. I'm like, Hey, Edward, I said, I'm willing to drive through the fires and everything. Like, I don't care. I said, this is too good an opportunity to pass up. I said, I can meet you in the hotel bar on top of the holiday inn. He's like, cool. So I sat there at the piano and he's here and the other choreographer and they'd give little steps and I'd play the music and they're like, Great. Like, that so was you, basically me, my you, audition. You auditioned in a spinning yeah. restaurant while the city was burning around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Classic. So, so visual. So anyway, I got that gig, but didn't, wasn't able to move to like a year later. And so then we moved down there and then we had um, Barrick, we call him Bear. And then we had Lorkin down there. And then we moved here and we got a job offer to work with Carolina Ballet through a mutual friend. And that's when we had Teague here a year later. And so, yeah, it's been quite the ride. He just graduated high school. He just graduated high school. So now, yeah, we're like, now what do we do? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're empty nesters. Yeah. So what are your thoughts right now as far as? I don't know. It's like, you know, my job at the church changed three years ago. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to do more stuff in music since I'm not doing that at church now. And so I I started working with Cary Conservatory. They have a pre-professional ballet program, which they approached me and said, hey, we'd love to get you at least in a few days a week. The kids never have live music. They don't know what it's like. So that's been awesome. This is my second year doing that. Yeah. That's like three mornings. And just to see the growth, one of the girls who was in the uh, program, she just got hired by Miami City Ballet and their quarter to ballet. So it's like, wow, you're going back to where I came from. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a cool little uh, program I've got going. But Have I, you ever thought about teaching? You never mentioned it. <laughs> I was I'm not a good teacher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I I'm not patient enough and I don't understand why. Why you don't, why aren't you People playing it right? Yeah. <laughs> and our oldest son used to, because for a while I taught our kids, Siobhan, so he used to teach them piano and he would battle back with me. Hmm. And he'd like, he'd say, I said, Kanan, you need to play this. That's what I play. And I'm like, please. <laughs> it was this classic oldest child, <laughs> father. But I'm like, this is not going to work. And then my daughter would be in tears when I was teaching her. So I'm like, Siobhan's like, I play clarinet. I think I can teach them enough hmm. on piano. Hmm. So... Yeah, I, I'm not a good teacher. Did I'm you, a good coach. Yeah. If somebody can play pretty decently or at least somewhat, I can give them tips and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I enjoy that. Your daughter's a great singer. She, she, she sang was. at church a lot. Yeah. Does she still do anything with music? They, um, they're involved. They go to Passion City. So they're kind of in the choir. Trevor, her husband, you know, he was on the team here. He, he'll sometimes, uh, a company and like lead the choir. She's gotten an opportunity to help with that too. When they yeah. were on, when they had just had the last passion tour and do the warm ups with them and stuff. So, but yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's very cool. But yeah, raising kids is a trip. Yeah. <laughs> Five. Five. Yeah. That's a lot of kids. And now yeah. they're all done. They're all yeah. I mean, done in the sense of they've, they've hit the 18 mark. Yeah. Now you guys are in that next chapter of empty nesting. Yeah. So it's interesting. We've thought about a lot of things and again, not doing music. It's like at the church trying to fill that 
kind of not void, but the gap, I, I want to do that. So I've been able to right. you know, do more of that. I have performances coming up in April with Carolina Ballet again. So right now I'm in the process of learning all that music, which is music I've never played before. So it's, I gave myself a month to learn it all. So yeah. I'm, I'm about two weeks in and it's coming along. Who's your favorite kind of audience to play for? Is it, is it more fun to play for people that are there just to party? I imagine that's cruise ships. Like we're here to party. This is what that we're was to fun do. back then. Yeah. I don't think it would be fun now. Uh, You're not going back on the cruise line. <laughs> who knows? Um, but uh, like even at the ballet, you know, I've been here long enough where I have fans like there are people in the audience who know me and appreciate it and they'll come down before and after and like yeah. so you feel like that's kind of cool it's not just playing to an audience of strangers yeah. there's a moment at, at so we at hope which is where carl and i work that uh and the beginning of the christmas uh presentation we would it became a tradition where we would rent like a great oh, right. piano and, and carl would just and it was funny because like you're very good uh you're a very good pianist uh, and I would often pop up there and just like, cause at the time I was working in that and so I'd come <laughs> up and say, Oh, we got a couple minutes or whatever. And tell, and he would have these notes that was just like a sticky note. And they'd be like, just the names of songs. Out of, like this was the level of prep. <laughs> yeah. Print out a list of and songs. Like, and programming standpoint, it's like, we're going to need you to do like 18 minutes. <laughs> like, yeah. Let me just, all right, let's do this. And uh, you'd always end it with Snoopy, uh, the theme song from Snoopy and, yeah. and, and fake that he was running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> and squeeze the last person in the last seven or eight oh, yeah, seconds. I remember that. But like what, what you were saying is like that became like a thing people. Right. Like, yeah. Or that's, that's when it feels like it became part of the tradition of mm. like, oh yeah, when Carl gets up there and does his thing on the keys. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that all those experiences that, that you had in your life kind of led you to the point where you are right now? Or I was talking to somebody about the idea of, of story editing, which is like this thing that's like a, a coaching tip for, for younger kids. Mm -hmm. Like instead of looking at your story through this lens, reframe it this way. Do you wish that there were portions of your story that you could kind of edit out? Or do you think they're all just part of the process that got you to where you are? Gosh. Um, the problem is there are, but it's like those creepy movies they try and make where, or even if it's a wonderful life is the prime example, you know, if you did change this, other things wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I mean, that's the, probably the reality. So, you know, there were stupid things I've done, things you've said that you wish you didn't, mm -hmm. but you don't know if it could have significantly changed your trajectory. Yeah. Like I didn't want to be homeless in LA and, and get evicted from my apartment with my roommate and be on the street and having to ask girls are we going to live with them. But then I got the cruise ship job. Then I met the guys from the studio on the ship. Yeah. Then I met my wife, you know, so even that one thing at that time and the, the night we got evicted, we moved all our stuff in. He had a car, my roommate, well, he loaded everything up. So we, in the morning, we just leave. We go out in the windows busted and it was right in Hollywood. We stole all our stuff. Mm. So it's like, now we literally have nothing, but I don't have anything to carry around or store anywhere. <laughs> so line. like that whole thing was like, yeah. this is horrible. But within a, a couple of weeks, everything turned around. And I remember I went home on the way back from uh, Panama Canal and all that. My younger brother saw me, he goes, man, you look different. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you look happy. Because <laughs> the last year in LA was just difficult. You know, you were yeah. no money. 
scrimping to get by and barely had any, I had broken my wrist in 1985, jumping over a wall, being crazy, like on the 4th of July. And so it's just not a good year. Mm. So did I wish I didn't have all that? Yeah, but. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like that. The lows are almost the necessary thing that get us moving to the next chapter. Yeah. And if, cause I've often wondered if you cut that part out. Yeah. Like you were saying, would it, would it change the good stuff? Yeah. And it probably would. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, in hindsight, looking back, especially when, when you got a separator of time, you can kind of be more appreciative of the tough spots that you got put in. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say you treasure them. We were talking to a guy on the show that was talking about how it's those moments that like he tries to put himself in those situations. Cause that's when you find out who you really are. Right. Is when, when you put yourself or when you are put in a very challenging situation, mm-hmm. then you find out kind of really what you're made of. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, um, if you could, uh, what kind of lessons do you feel you wish you would have le- learned sooner in life? I think the one thing I wish I had been again, more assertive with and confident yeah. in my own gifts and talents. It wasn't until I remember when it was, it, it was <laughs> so strange. It was when we moved here, I'd been in Miami six years performing with the orchestra there. And then I got hired by the Boca Raton, the Boca Pops. They heard me cause we subcontracted. I start working with them. So everybody was always like, man, it's awesome. Awesome. But I still never felt like, I was the guy because I think I was so young when I did it in LA when I was 20 Mm. playing with these monsters, (laughs) musicians, you know, and they're like, man, you're you're good. And I'm like, yeah, I was just saying that. (laughs) But we moved. Do you think people treated you differently because you were young? Like, did you think they they were grading you on a scale because of your age? I thought that. Yeah. Maybe not overtly, but I think I did think that. But uh, there was one piece in, uh, it's a ballet called Rubies and it's a Stravinsky piece. And it's super hard. It's the hardest thing I'd ever learned. And we did that. We performed it down there. I barely made it through the rehearsal. Like the first time is that it's that difficult and it's like crazy timing. And anyway, we finished the program and then we were going to go to Scotland on tour. And they said, we're doing that. And the conductor even told me, goes, I want, I need it better than that. If you're going to represent us there. And I said, well, I'll work on it. Now I've performed it. Now I can get it. Yeah. So he sat in the ballet studio with me. He's an Asian guy. He's awesome. He's dead now. It's just sad. But uh, he conducted me and no other orchestra. So I had to watch him and play this thing for you. He goes, okay, okay. <laughs> so I performed that there. And then we performed it countless times down in Miami. So I move here. What's first on the program? this ballet rubies yeah so they'd had their share of bring flying people in for soloists and they tried local people no one they were really happy with didn't understand the dance vocabulary so i came in and it was north carolina symphony at that point we weren't using subcontract and i sit down well i played the crap out of it i felt like i was leading the orchestra like yeah and all these guys were coming up to me and i'm like they're like man that's awesome well now i'm a little older Right. That was 99. So it would have been 38. I went home. I told Siobhan, I'm like, that was the day I felt like confident in my talents. Well, it was until I was 38. Though. Until you were 38. Yeah. So very strange. Yeah. Uh, what do you think the difference is between, because I've often wondered this, because I know, I wouldn't say I'm the most confident guy and I'm about 38. Um, the, this is your year. This, this is, is your day. Year. Yeah. <laughs> this is your day. This, I did it. No, I'm not quite 38 yet, but soon may the, uh, 
What do you think the difference is between um, like confidence and arrogance? Arrogance is annoying. No, I, it's a, it's a thing that bothers me. Yeah. Just when I meet someone, I like someone who's kind of confident, but if it, when it crosses the line of arrogance, it's just, it's just a huge turnoff for me. Yeah. And some of the best musicians, actors, dancers that I've met that are confident, not arrogant are so nice to be around, but that it's that arrogant personality. I don't want to be around it. No matter how gifted they are. I, it, it sullies their talent to me Yeah, if I've met them. So what you're saying is like so much of it could just be like the way they interact, like their personality. Yeah. They know they're good. I guess that's confidence too, though, but. It's almost like they know they're better than could be arrogance. Yeah. And sometimes they're not as good as other people and they're arrogant thinking they are. So I, I don't know. There's a lot maybe that plays into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know the, the, the difference either, but you can tell it's yeah. one of those things. Like you can tell when somebody just knows like Pavarotti. Yeah. Perfect example. Yes. He was super talented, but did he really need to try and belittle me because he was bummed that I didn't want to listen to him sing? <laughs> well, you were telling that story. I'm rewatching Frasier. I viewed Pavarotti as Frasier Crane's character, just kind of <laughs> pompous. Like <laughs> the, um, well, that's, that's cool, man. What other, do you feel like there's any, any, sh- do you feel like there's any kind of weapons of choice as somebody that spent so much of their life in music or things that you've done that are like these disciplines or these practices have really helped me. And if you're really serious about it, you should do these things. Um, Most people would say practice, but you said you yeah, don't really I like, didn't like, like even now getting ready for this program, I have to force myself to sit down and do it, but I know I have to, or I won't learn it. I mean, it's logical, mm-hmm. but once I start getting it, then now I'm almost like I'm playing some of the pieces. So I feel like excited about yeah. doing the show, but well, you have a, to practice. Mm-hmm. But when it's a complicated piece like that, do you end up memorizing it or are you still reading the sheet music or? Well, I told Shimon like this one piece, one part of it, and it's only about three and a half or four minutes long. It's so fast. And like, they can't see, but it goes like, like it's like that. So you can't read it. Yeah. So you have to learn it slow Mm. and then speed it up. And then it's muscle memory. I mean, it has to be muscle memory. You're using the music as a guide at that point. But do you find that you're able to recall like the majority of stuff that you've learned or is it just the, it will come back fast. Yeah. Yeah. If I go to it, there's a handful that I can sit down and just play. Yeah. Like the th- several of the ones that I did in at NYU, like I can still sit down and play those. Cause they're just so ingrained. Cause you mm-hmm. did it so much. through the years. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if uh, you were talking about <sighs> muscle memory, how, how many hours do you think? Cause you, I think you came up, you started a lot younger than most people. Do you think there's any kind of credit to, there's this book by Malcolm Gladwell called tipping point that talks about like being an expert in anything takes a specific amount of hours, I've heard like of that. 10,000 hours. Yeah. Do you, do you find that that's to be true? Or do you feel like with your story, I feel like you had a level of gifting that was extraordinary. I feel it's a gift too. Yeah. But that, that's another thing too. Like I, I believe people are actually gift. I believe it's a gift from God where some people just believe like Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. so unless you have the gift, I don't think it matters how many million hours you did it. It's gotta be a combination of the two things. And I bet he says that. People will come in and 
like when I used to lead worship him, oh, I've played for 20 years. Oh, great. You hear them like, oh yeah, but you played badly for 20 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to unlearn. Stuff. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of mediocrity, I think, in, in the arts. I've just experienced growing up that I worked, got the, had the opportunity to work with such a high level of people in a lot of different genres that it, it kind of bums me out or makes me sad to hear something that's mediocre or watch something that's mediocre because there are more talented people who aren't getting the opportunity because someone else who's mediocre got the opportunity, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the hours have something to do with it, but I would be the opposite where I practice as little as possible you're still going to get a good product because I know that's what the customer is paying for. <laughs> yeah. And that's my heart. I want to be, you know, I want it to present well, whatever I'm playing or writing. So. Yeah. Well, that's probably a really smart way to approach it as opposed to just treating it like a clock that you're trying to run out. Like ultimately you're learning to perform mm-hmm. or you're, you're learning or you're practicing what you're gifted at so that you can present it to other people. Right. Um, regardless of what it is, whether it's music or whether it's photography or whatever it is you're into the, the moment where you get to present it to other people as useful is the part that's always excited me. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your favorite part of the creative process, Josh? Probably, probably the most important part would be the pr- preparation. Favorite part would be, Hmm. Sharing it. Yeah. Sharing what you're creating with other people and seeing the impact it has on those people. Like you're saying. Mm. That's always been my favorite part. Like shipping it. Like once it's done, I like to finish it. Right. Because I feel like then it's real. And now we're going to see if it works. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um. Yeah. Ultimately, if you don't have other people, how do you have anything? Right. I mean, I'm sure there's some things that are just very personal. Do it for yourself. Do you like, do you play music just for yourself? Like, is there a piano Somebody in your house? Somebody just asked me that yesterday. Question. And I, told, I said, it's so rare. Yeah. It's maybe You're twice, never just like, maybe three times a year where I'll just sit down and play. Or I'll hear something. I'll have music playing, like a playlist, mm-hmm. jazz or something. And I'll hear something. And I'll go like jam along with it for like three minutes. But just to sit down. And then when I sit down to play. I don't play music, Jimmy. I just like my emotions are just coming out and I'll play for 15, 20, 30 minutes, just nonstop. It's like exhaling Mm -hmm. your emotions. Mm -hmm. And so a couple times a year. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree with that. And that like when I go make a photograph, sometimes I go out just for a walk in the woods and I don't share those, but I get fulfilled by just going out 15, 20, 30 minutes yeah. and capturing something. There's probably something to mm-hmm. like the idea that like when it's art for you, you're doing it just for you. Like, cause art, I remember I read this book by Seth Godin and he had this principle in there. I think it's called linchpin. Um, and he was saying like, when you do stuff that's meant for yourself, you're giving it away. It's like free. Like, mm-hmm. um, like there's a, there's a word in a different language. I think it might be Spanish. I don't know. I don't want to sound unintelligent, but I'm not remembering. Right. But mm-hmm. the work, of art is also just means work in mm. a lot of different languages. And what you're doing is you're giving it away. You're offering it up and you're giving it away. And he was making that point in the book, like, but if you're a designer or if you're a musician that's getting paid, it's, it's, you're doing it for another purpose as well. 
and you can't confuse the two. You need to have the time that you're doing things that are energizing for you. That's just for you. That's just for free. And that might be a couple of times a year when right. you just sit down and jam and it's just for you. Mm. And I think that's probably really important in the process to figure out like, cause otherwise you might lose the connection of what had you so passionate about the discipline at the start. Mm. It was funny. I found, uh, cause I've transferred all my cassettes to, you know, MP3s several years back. But I found a, a piece I, when Teague was born, she, you know, she was in the hospital. So I went home that night and had a little home studio at that point at the house. And I think it's like 14 minutes long <laughs> just playing. And it's like, I remember it took me back to having the baby and like, yeah, it's really trippy to listen to, but it's one of the few things I've ever recorded doing what I was just talking about. Yeah. And another one was, I remember just, down in my studio one day and started playing music. And I want to let my, I remember I did that Christmas album. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, a piece on there called well, Winter's Walk. It again is like one of these 14 minute long pieces. But when you listen to it, like it, t- it told a story. I was right, like telling a story in my mind where it's someone for a walk and then they get caught in a storm and someone invites them in and it's kind of warm and you can feel like the fire, but then you have to get home. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's this whole thing. And then I put it on there, like, but it was just a jam really is what it was. Or just sitting down and letting emotions out. Yeah. But when I listen back, I'm like, wow, that's like a piece of music, which mm-hmm. is rare mm-hmm. that you would just sit and do something that long that actually works on its own. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's cool. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you, Carl. Thanks so much you for too, being on the Josh. podcast. Josh. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it was been, it's been cool. This is Carl Moraski. Hey, is there anything that you, if anybody wanted to find out more information or the upcoming shows you got coming up at the ballet, where would they find that info? Um, CarolinaBallet.com. CarolinaBallet.com. Yeah. And the show that you're working on right now will be out in? It's in April. I think it's the second week. It's called Monet Impressions. The choreographer is fantastic. It's, it's a redo, but we never did it live. She choreographed this several years ago, but she's choreographed a ton. She did Footloose. Like, she's that good. Oh, cool. And uh, it's based on a couple of Monet's paintings. Oh, that's nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. Awesome. We'll check yeah. that out. We'll put a link in the show notes. For sure. All right. Thanks, everybody. All right. You guys have a great Signing day. off. Signing yeah. off. Signing okay. Off. Thank you, Carl. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. Well, thank you guys very much for tuning into this episode of Guys Who Do Stuff. Gracias. Yeah. Just let me say, like, I really appreciate We've been doing this for a couple months now. I really appreciate people listening to the podcast. I know that I really enjoy getting to talk to what I believe are some of the most interesting people in the triangle. You know what? Everybody has a story and some people like to share that story. Mm-hmm. And we like to be part of that sharing, don't we, Joe? Yes. <laughs> That's not very Bob Ross. Like, don't we? I'll just yes, paint in a do. nice little happy tree here. It's called Carl. <laughs> well, Carl. And a reminder to you guys listening, if you would like to ask us a question that we can talk about on the podcast, you can go to guyswhodostuff.com and press the button there to on the sidebar and record a question that we might play back on the air. Get your press on. Get your press on. Adios, amigos.